going to read from John chapter 14. This is a section where Philip has asked Jesus, show us the Father, and we see Jesus' response um, begins in verse 9, but I'm going to start in, in verse 10. Our focus will be on verse 14, or 13, sorry. I'm going to read uh, John 14, 10 through 14. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let us pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would allow us to continue this worshiping of the Son, worshiping him as that one who is the intercessor, who lives to make intercession for his people, who has gone before us as Redeemer, as opening the way, a new and living way in hope. And Father, we do ask that you would teach us, help us in these things, that we may have a heart of, not only of wisdom, but a, a desire to pray and to pour our hearts before him, that we might be helped, that we might be able to glorify you, and we do these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Last time that we were together, we looked at prayer in relation to God the Father. We looked at that economic authority that God the Father is the source of providence, that he is the lawgiver and judge, and on that basis we come before him with reverence and awe. But also we looked at God as the supreme object of worship that which stirs our hearts, and as we were reminded of the psalmist, as he declares, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Tonight we want to look briefly, and the subject would take us months to exhaust, perhaps years, the work of Christ in relation to prayer. And we read in this verse in John, and whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We pray to the Father through the Son, but he says, whatever you ask in my name. And what does that mean? And how is it to be, how is, are we to look at it in relation to our prayers? our prayers as individuals, but I think as we have seen over and over that we are not alone and that our actions of, of prayer are also included in our communion together as believers. So we want to look at the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in relation to our prayer. In, and I have four things 
The first of these, the Son as revealer of God, the, the one who has revealed God to us. And the scriptures uh, really give us two facts uh, to begin looking at this. One is that no human has ever seen God. No human being knows God comprehensively. But we also see that the scripture shows us that Jesus, the Son, is the chosen revealer, the one who would reveal God to us. John chapter 1, the, the beautiful uh, section in the beginning of that uh, gospel. No one has seen God at any time, John says. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. See, what, what we see is that uh, there are many around us who, who say, well, well I, I see God in nature. I, I, I see the stars and the majesty of the heavens, and I see the, the creation, and, and that helps me know God. And, and yet there, there's a very limited amount of knowledge of God that we get, as majestic and awesome as it is. I, I was thinking about, um, you know, the times that I have have gone out to see the stars and, and, and you know, the meteor showers and things. The best time to see them here is in winter when it's cold, but the, the air is clear, the sky is clear, and you can see them better. But, but as I lay there in the leaves, it is a majesty, but it's a majesty which is somewhat, if I could use this phrase, cold and far away. It's distant. And it's as if the revelation of creation, again, as awesome as it is, can only bring us into the vestibule, into the kind of the outer court. It cannot bring us into the inner sanctuary of God. We need someone, some way to be revealed, revealed to us the, the moral and spiritual consciousness of God. That doesn't come to us from the stars and the trees. But we're reminded in Hebrews chapter 1 that God in, in many times has spoken in the past through the prophets, but he says he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. See, here's the one that, that God has chosen to be the revealer, the one who can divulge the secret things of God to us. And, and, and these things Jesus does because he has personal knowledge, because he is the begotten of the Father, and because he has that prerogative. He has been chosen to do this. Jesus said himself in Matthew 11, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. God has chosen him as the revealer. And in Revelation, we find the words written of Jesus there by John. He calls Jesus Christ the faithful witness. See, we have an eyewitness. We have an ear witness in Christ. And so this, on this basis, our prayers now have meat to them. They have, as some of the commentators call it, material that it furnishes us. We know what to pray about and for and how because we've had more revelation of who God is. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, for through him, meaning Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father.'" 
See, it's, it's that access that we need in order to pray. And he says, but it's only through him. He's the revealer. It's through that knowledge that we, we can come to God. And, and we have confidence when we do that. Because he has a commission straight from God, and he's responsible for the truth that is transmitted. And, and as we heard this morning, there, there can be no disagreement in the Godhead. The truth is the truth, and Jesus is responsible for revealing that to us. In, in fact, in this passage that we read, there, there is this, you know, language apparently in the, in the English the old language was verily, verily. We read it truly, truly. There, there is that emphasis that Jesus did that gives us in that double truly, truly that says, truth, truth, I say to you. I say to you. And so we, we have here Jesus, in a sense, he's, he's telling us in a different way what he has said earlier in this passage before the disciples in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And without that revealer, without that one who is the faithful and true witness, we can't come boldly before the throne of grace because we don't know how. We don't know how to do it as we ought and what to say. And in fact, what we see here is the veracity of the witness allows him to say, truly, truly, I say to you. And that's when we ought to be listening because he is revealing more of the Father to us. And again, for us as a corporate body, as a body of believers, he reveals the truth around which we gather. The reason we gather together and know that we ought to be participating in one another and exhorting and encouraging one another is because he's revealed that to us. He's revealed the will and the desire of the Father to us in that. But the work, the work of the Son as the Redeemer, point two, is that which opens that way. To be a redeemer, Christ must have power over his own life. And we know from John 10, he says that exactly. I lay down my life, not out of someone else's will, but my own. He says, I lay down my life on my own initiative. I lay it down and I have power to take it up again. See, see the redeemer is, is, is not that one who, who many think is, well, he was a good man or he was a special person. No, the redeemer has these characteristics uh, of which Jesus Christ is the only one that fits the bill and executed the requirements. And he can't be deficient in anything. If someone is to reveal God to us, not only does he have to, to know the truth, but, but he, he, has to do, he has to do the requirements of the law. Paul says in Galatians, here is one, Jesus Christ, he was born under the law in order that he might redeem those who are under the bondage of the law. He, see, he met the requirements that he came as a man, his incarnation enabled him to be born under the law and to redeem those 
under the law because he did what the law requires. But he also comes with infinite resources. He also comes with, with this ability to meet the demands that the, that the law requires, the demands of justice. And John, in his epistle in 1 John chapter 4, he simply says that God appointed him the Savior of the world. It's like in that verse, it's, yeah, there he is. <laughs> He's the Savior of the world. There is no one else. The, he, he meets that requirement of the Redeemer. But we know and we heard these verses this morning. Again, uh, the last two Sundays from Isaiah 53. The Redeemer must have actually been under the curse of the law. And in Isaiah 53, we have those words. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was under that curse of the law by the providence, the will, the sovereignty of God, the design and then we are, it is revealed to us in 1 Timothy. And I, I'm just going to read these because it, it, it's a profound statement. What, what we see of him as the, the Redeemer, Paul simply says, and, and by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on to explain that. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. See, it, it, it goes from one to the other. He, he has met the requirement of the law. He has lived that life which was required of him. And then... As he says, as he laid down his life, he was believed on in the world, and then he was taken up into glory. And, and it is requirement that, that, that he do that. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but you can see from Redeemer, if he was only Redeemer, it still does not give us everything we need in order to pray confidently and, and, and with power. But in the Redeemer, he lays that groundwork for us because it's only by his redeeming us by his redemptive power that any of the rights that we say that we have are restored without redemption we we're not restored to that rightful relationship especially as it relates to approaching holy god without it we we don't approach at all prayer does not exist Works of righteousness that we have done do not save us. Therefore, we plead with the Father for mercy by the Son and by His redeeming work. See, it's on that basis that we come to God by the power in Jesus, the redeem, re redeeming work of Jesus, we, we come. And, and the condition of our expectations for that our prayers would even be answered is here. In Romans 5, Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We exult in the hope of glory of God. See, the expectations of, of, of our prayer, and, and I say that, isn't that part of prayer? Expectation? But what is our expectation based on? It's based on that work that he has done. He's justified us. 
and then we have peace with God, and then we realize we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. See, that, that ability in, in which we, we come to God. And it's also on the basis of Christ as Redeemer that we make any progress in our walk with God, do we not? It's only because of who he is. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 1, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. See, see without those things, we're nothing. Without him, we, we have no ability to pray. We have no, nothing to stand on, no way to come before God unless he is our redeemer. And we are in him by God's doing. But it was necessary that he go away. It was necessary for us as prayers that Christ go to be our intercessor, point three. Resurrection means that he satisfied the claims of the law, that his work of sacrifice is finished, and his work, work is authenticated by his resurrection and appearance in the right, at the right hand of the throne of God because he is our advocate. He is our attorney there. The writer to the Hebrews writes in chapter 7, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God by him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, it's necessary that he be there. One, for the validation and authentication of his work and his redeeming acts but also because he is now before the Father. He knows the law. He knows who we are. He knows the divine will. He knows what is involved in fulfilling that will. And so he is infallibly able to fulfill that office of intercessor. And so, in relation to prayer... We take our prayers to the one who does understand, the one who prevailed, and the one who advocates on our behalf. See, there's no other. Benjamin Palmer says this, this puts nerve into our prayer, that it passes through the intercessor and is covered with his endorsement before it is laid before the throne. See, we pay, pray in the name of Jesus. We pray, but it, it's this one who is the perfect intercessor. I, I like this. It's covered with his endorsement. No other signature would work. No other name would be accepted by the Father but his. And Palmer goes on to say, Wherein consists the secret power of prayer? in the perfect blending of our desires with the petitions issuing from the lips of the Advocate on high. See, there, there is a clause in here. There, there is that, that we come in the name of Jesus, but it implies that we come with a desire to glorify the Father, to, to follow the will of Christ in accordance with what he has revealed to us. 
And so again, when, when you hear people saying, you know, I've, I've prayed for wealth or I've prayed for prosperity, I've prayed for these other things, we, we know that God looks at us as his children and, and you who are parents know that, you know, a child will ask you for almost anything and there are some things that are according to your will that you know will be good for him and things that you know will be really bad for him. And Jesus intercedes for us when we, we don't understand really what to pray, how to pray, or how that, what that real need is. And yet he is the intercessor there to pass it through his knowledge, his understanding of the divine will. And teaches us how to pray according to that as the revealer. So all of these things work together. All of these things come together as we pray, understanding that God desires to give good things to his children, and yet there is that process. My, part of my summer reading has been to read from the diary of David Brainerd. And some of you know that Brainerd was a, a missionary to the Delaware Indians back in the 1740s. And if you've read his diary, uh, there's a, a lot of times in there that I think, man, I don't know if I know a more melancholy person than David Brainerd. And yet the power with which he prays, the perseverance with which he prays. And so I'm reading this and, and I'm underlining these where he's, his sole desire is to glorify God in all that he does. And he has all of these passages where he says, you know, I, I just, my misimprovement of my time must grieve the heart of God and how I wish that I could pour myself out better. And you read and you read and you read and that I came to this passage. It's from, if you're interested, July 1744. He says, I spent some time in reading God's word and prayer. Through divine goodness, it was apparent to me that it was his cause I pleaded for and not my own and was enabled to make this argument with God to answer my request. You see, it, it wasn't his will. It's as if he came to that point and saying, I realize God is, is, is showing me that I'm pleading according to his cause. And it was on that basis that I was able to argue with God that he ought to answer those things. See, that's a confidence. That, that's that's a, a relationship that, that we would all aspire to. A, a, a way that he has come before the throne of God in an intimacy that we would long for and desire for ourselves and for each other. And so you read and, and you think, who is this guy? And yet you read and see, no. God gave him a power before the throne because he came as a child of Jesus Christ. The one who was the revealer, the one who was the redeemer, the one who was his intercessor. And finally, we look at the son as his, in his mediatorial office, in his office as king and authority. Christ said all authority and, and dominion is given to him to rule by. 
It's given him first to rule because God gave it to him. Matthew 28, familiar verse. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me in heaven and upon earth. But his authority and dominion is also by his own purchase. Galatians 3, we really read, Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He, he paid for that redemption. He laid down his life for that. And, and not only did he pay for that, he sealed that to us, becoming a curse for us. And by doing that, we find that he brings good from evil, that he brings things to our lives. Daniel 9 prophesies of Christ, the one who would make an end of sins, he says, and bring in everlasting righteousness. See, this is the king. This is the one on the basis of, of his laying down his life and his purchase. Now he has rightfully become owner. If you purchase something, you own it. And it's on his part as the owner, as the king, as the authority and dominion over us. He's also become that authority as the scriptures call him being the second Adam. Paul simply says of him in 1 Corinthians 15 when he describes that second Adam as different from the first Adam, he calls him the Lord from heaven. He, he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He has that authority and that dominion, and he is head over all things for the church, the scriptures teach us. And so on that basis, as we see him, we look to him. We look to the one who has provided redemption. And he is also the one who secures its benefits. See, he's, he's paid for it. He owns it. But in owning us and in owning his redeemed people, he secures all the benefits, all the promises that God has for his people. First John, again, John says, the Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's a security that we can bank on, that we can go to God in thanksgiving for, that he has destroyed the works of the devil and we are no longer under the bondage of sin. But we also see that all the promises of God are given in Christ. In Galatians 3 again, Paul says to us, remember, you know, promises were given to Abraham and to his seed, singular, and the seed is Christ. The promises were given to him, why? So that he can dispense them to us, that he can be the keeper of them, that he can be the one who issues those things for which we pray. Palmer, again, writes, all the promises of grace are made to Christ as the trustee and the representative of his people. See, there is the king. There is the authority and dominion. He's the trustee of all of the promises of Scripture to his people. And on that basis, we can come to him and plead for those things. And we can ask him for those things. The, the promises are addressed, addressed to believers are 
those who are in vital union with him by faith. It's by faith we pray. But as several men pointed out in their theologies, prayer of faith is not simply a request to God to grant a human wish. The promises of Christ are procured by resting, and our faith rests on his execution of the terms of the law. By the fact that he has executed the law, that he has kept it perfectly, then, then we have this, it's, it's almost as if we have this warrant, that, that there is no other basis on which we come to God except on the fact that Christ has done it and he is the trustee of all these things of which we desire. Again, David Brainerd in his di diary from October of that same year that I referred to earlier, he says this, God was gracious to me, helping me to plead with him for holiness and to use the strongest arguments with him, drawn from the incarnation and sufferings of Christ for this very end, that men might be made holy. See, the Savior of the world came and he did these things and he's holding these promises in his hand to give to his people. And Brainerd said, on the basis of his incarnation, the basis of his suffering, I know that he is the holder of those things and the very thing which his heart desires, he made my heart plead for, that men would be made holy. <laughs> there's a confidence. There, there's a prayer that has meat there's a prayer that, yes, he may still be a man and frail and concerned that he is not everything that God would need him to be for his, his own people as a missionary. And yet, he comes back to that based on who Christ is and what he has done and the holder of those things. I argue with God that he should make men holy. The promises Christ offers to his children are not by our own merit, but by this warrant. Whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do, he says, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And what is this asking in Jesus' name? Palmer says it is, but to ask by his authority and for the blessings which he alone can convey. Our confidence is in him. Our words are from those things that he has revealed to us. Our hope is in his redemptive power, and our prayer is according with his desires as King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us pray. Father, these are great things, again, that we could exhaust days and weeks and months reading, rejoicing in, in the scriptures, that Christ is our revealer, our redeemer, our intercessor and king. Father, on, on this basis, we come to you, on the basis of Christ, and according to his word, we believe and we pray. 
And we ask that you would teach us to pray more confidently, more, with more meat and with more vigor, knowing that we barely scratch the surface, that there are so many promises that you have just waiting for us to, to give to your children, to bestow blessings, to change men's hearts, to bring families together, to glorify your own name. We ask that we would learn to pray in this way, because of Jesus and according to his name, we ask it. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction. Perhaps more of a doxology than a benediction, but was drawn to the words from Revelation chapter 5. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them heard, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever.